One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Tim Brudshaw, our technology correspondent, Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent, and down the line we are joined from New York by Rob Armstrong, our US finance editor, and from Sydney, Australia by Jamie Smith. Our guest this week is Masha Silias, who is a partner at B, the financial consultancy. This week we'll be taking a look at Google's move into bank accounts, a catch-up in Australia with how badly the banks there are faring. And finally, TSB, a critical report on the IT meltdown. Let's talk about our first story, and this is Google moving into finance in a big way, seemingly. Anyway, Tim, tell us exactly what Google is doing. So Google has said that it wants to offer current accounts to its customers through its Google Pay app, which is already a sort of Apple Pay style way of paying for things online or in the real world through your phone. And they're now talking to financial services companies, including Citi, about launching a current account, a checking account that will allow you to store money in there and what they call a smart account, which they're hoping to launch next year. Now, this is something that experts in finance thought might never happen because the theory was, yes, tech companies can do stuff on the fringes of finance, but they'll never want to get into core banking as they don't want to have a banking license and all the regulation that goes with that. But of course, what Google is doing here is they're cheating, aren't they? They're going to use a Citigroup or some other financial institution as the back end and they're just going to be the front of it. Right. It's cheating. It's also a lot easier than trying to launch your own alternative cryptocurrency, which some Silicon Valley companies have been doing with mixed results recently. Yeah. Facebook so, and Libra hasn't really gone anywhere. Not so far. I think what Google would argue is that they may not be experts at getting banking licenses, but banks have perhaps not been experts at building apps or the sort of digital experiences that can take advantage of all of that. And there's a lot of data that comes with running a checking account. And so they can show that to us as consumers, as the holders of those banks. And they've said that they're going to treat that information in a privacy-friendly fashion. We'll come back to that point. Let me bring Rob in to kind of explain to us the back end of this. We don't know for sure that Citigroup is going to be the main institution or, or the only institution, I don't think yet, Rob. But tell us what you know about the partners involved in this whole project. Well, the only named partners so far are Citibank and a small credit union in California. So Citibank is the only proper bank we know of involved at this point. And I think it's interesting to ask why them. And I would argue that at least part of that answer is because of the large banks, they are the ones with the weakest deposit gathering franchise right now. And so I think the appeal for them is that this is potentially a low-cost distribution network to boost their deposit base. And of course, you couldn't get much bigger in terms of consumer brand than Google, so it fits pretty neatly for them. Yes, and I think the question that you have to ask always when one of the fangs or the tech giants saunters up and suggests a partnership is who is going to capture the value. So the question for Citibank is they get these deposits the depositor gets a WYSI Google interface. What does 
Citibank have to give to Google in return for what they provide? How much do the deposits actually cost in terms of interest rate? And do they have to kick money over to Google in some other form? We don't know the details on any of that yet, but the devil is absolutely going to be in the details for Citi on this one. Let's get an outside view of this now. We're joined by Marsha Siliers, who's a partner at the financial consultancy B. Masha, thanks very much for coming in. What's your take on this? We don't see a company the size of Google breaking into banking every day. Is this a really big deal? Whilst I think, indeed, we don't see as many companies doing that yet, we are beginning to see the trend, right? We only had Uber announcement a couple of weeks ago. We've mentioned Libra earlier. I think the tech companies really understand now that whilst some of their current revenues, specifically for Google, advertising revenues are great, but we all know they're not sustainable long term. You know, you guys work for newspaper, television. We know that the revenues move from one channel to another. So what's the future to show? So I think Google is being quite prudent in looking for getting into broader customer segments. I also think that for interesting points about what City has to gain from that, you rightly said, Rob, that City has been somewhat late in some of the innovation and improving the consumer journey. I would also argue that for them to target certain segments, especially millennials, will be quite hard. I read statistic that 30% of millennials' questions said they'd happily bank with the technology companies. And those millennials don't know what the banks are. So that's access to demographic. That's a crucial segue into this point that Tim raised about data as well, because obviously, apart from winning over customers or deepening that relationship with customers, Google will want the data out of these transactions. Now, this is a very sensitive area because if data relating to search and other non-financial topics is a sensitive one, then how much more sensitive is it when it relates to your finances? And the banks, while they are widely distrusted by many in society, they are, I think, normally valued for being pretty decent at protecting your data. Not always, but it's a relationship generally of trust. How does Google deal with that challenge? Can they become as trusted as a bank? I mean, Google has said when they were announcing this venture, and I think it is still in its earliest stages, so they may not have figured out all of the details, but they claim that they will maintain, quote, rigorous standards for privacy and user control. User control does imply that this will be an option. You can opt in or out of sharing your data with them around these kinds of things. And Despite all of the scares that we've had around user information and particularly around Facebook of late, people do trust Google with a phenomenal amount of their information, whether that's all of their emails or their phone, their location, their maps. So all of this is still there. So it may be a lower barrier to trust than we might suspect. I think the other thing that's interesting about this happening in the US is that the appeal of a Googly smart bank account might be greater there than it would be here in the UK, where we've got a lot of these kind of challenger banks with much more slick apps, the sort of Monzos and Revoluts of the world, which are by and large not as available in the US, where it's much harder to get a banking license. And so this might be lower hanging fruit for them to to do something that would appeal to that younger demographic. A final word from you, Rob, on this? I would just mention that it's probably useful in this context to distinguish between the privacy concerns of consumers and the privacy concerns of regulators. Yes, consumers have shown that although they make noises around the periphery, they are willing to trust Google with quite a bit of their personal information. But if Google and or Citibank 
should make a mistake here, the regulatory backlash could be absolutely spectacular. So I would say the stakes are extremely high for Google's future aspirations in finance and other high sensitivity areas that they do not screw this up. Masha, the last word? Well, for me, the Google should do what they're good at, which is providing the sleek, very simple custom interface, provide great experience and use the data in a positive way, using the analytics, providing you with the goods or services or helping the brands position themselves with the right demographic. Google knows about where we shop, what we eat, where we go. They can segment the marketing campaigns down to the unit of one. So I think that's really attractive. And as you say, and if they work with credible institutions who are banks and who are compliant and who are rigorously striving to comply constantly with regulation across the world, it will be a lot easier for Google to just be successful in what they're doing rather than trying to get into the banking business. Longer term, however, if I was a startup bank, I'd be worried because indeed this is definitely the first step (laughs) into this direction. Let's move on to our second topic and a look at Australia's banking sector. We don't often look at the banking sector down under, but Jamie, thanks very much for joining us because it is a particularly rough time for Australia's banks. If you think of the big four banks, Commonwealth Bank, ANZ, NAB, Westpac, they've all been under fire from government and they've all been under fire in terms of their performance. What exactly is going on? Why has Australia's banking sector had the worst results in a decade? Well, we've witnessed a remarkable turnaround in the fortunes of Australia's big four banks over the last year. In the decades since the 2008 financial crisis, we'd become used to these banks reporting ever-increasing profits, dividends, and generating some of the largest returns in equity of any of their peers across the Western world. But 2019 really turned out to be a horror year for these banks and their shareholders. Combined cash profits for the big four banks fell 8%, to $27 billion last year. And really, this is forcing banks to trim their dividends, strengthen their balance sheets, and caution about the challenging future outlook. There are probably four things which have really caused this slump in performance. The first is increasing regulation and compliance activity. The second is a weakening national economy. And linked to this is record low interest rates. And finally, tougher competition from foreign and internet-based rivals. So Australia's banks now facing tougher regulation. Why exactly and what form is it taking? Public pressure flowing from the Royal Commission inquiry into financial misconduct has really forced the government and regulators to up their game here. This investigation exposed widespread wrongdoing, including charging fees for no service, lying to regulators and really shoddy treatment of customers. There were 76 specific recommendations in the final report, 54 of which required government action, and that's ongoing. But some of the main changes are actually attitudinal, I think. You know, the prudential regulator APRA and the conduct regulator ASIC are targeting corporate culture within the banks much more aggressively now. So this includes posting regulatory personnel directly inside the largest banks And ASIC has adopted a why not litigate policy recently, which means rather than settling cases with banks, it's tending to take more court actions. We've also had a new banking executive accountability regime. Another factor really that is denting banks' profitability is that they're facing higher capital requirements at the minute. And this is as a result of international rules, but also a new set of domestic rules which come into force in Australia at the start of January. 
These are going to require the big four banks to be unquestionably strong. So they're doing this so that there's less risk to financial stability. But this also dents the bank's profitabilities because they've got to hold more capital on their balance sheet. And as if this change in Australia wasn't enough of a headache for bank boards, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand is flagging a major increase in capital requirements for its main banks, which are all owned by the big four Australian banks. How have the banks responded to the new regulations, Jamie? Well, the banks have either already disposed of or are in the process of selling off their wealth management arms, which were implicated by the Royal Commission inquiry as being responsible for the most egregious wrongdoings, typically offering dodgy financial advice and mistreating their customers. So the main banks here are aiming to become more simple, leaner banks, which focus more on their core banking operations. We've also seen new rules introduced on responsible lending, which have forced banks to scrutinise their borrowers' ability to pay back loans much more closely. And what that's done is it's caused banks to take a much more conservative approach to lending. So concerns about the impact on the economy actually has forced APRA recently to ease back on these rules somewhat. And we're beginning to see the banks lend more and this having less of an impact. But it certainly has been a big dent over the last 12 months. And from here, finally, Jamie, are the bank's results expected to worsen further? I think in the near to medium term, there isn't going to be a lot of good news for the Australian banks. So I think any recovery for the banks here will only come when a general economic upturn comes back onto the horizon. And that seems a couple of years away. Let's move on to our final topic and TSB, where regular listeners will remember and customers will remember an IT meltdown that really felled the bank last year. It knocked out systems for thousands of customers and it's only now really coming to terms with that. There's been a very critical report just published, an independent report from Slaughter & May, the law firm. And Nick, it's pretty ugly reading. Yes, so this report has been long awaited, 18 months in the works, has come out this morning and it's not particularly pleasant reading for anyone in and around TSB. The bank themselves have tried to emphasise that the biggest cause of this problem was some technical issues around some data centres and a lack of testing that was done by Sabis. It's, it's another part of TSB's owner, Sabadell. But throughout the wider report, there's a lot of broader issues that are raised with how TSB's board and its executives handled the whole preparation for this. So there's times that there were reviews by the audit committees internally that failed to identify some of the problems that later proved so damaging when the data migration actually went ahead. And also several occasions where they set needlessly tight timeframes and sort of picked the date that we wanted things ready by and then work backwards from that and try and have a system ready in time for that, which is not the best way of planning. Let's just remind listeners, this all happened because TSB had been spun out of Lloyd's. They had relied for several years on the old Lloyd's IT system, but they needed to move to a new system. And they chose a system provided by their new owner, Sabadell. But what they didn't need to do necessarily was follow the time frame that you've outlined. Yeah, that's right. So the initial argument for moving was that Lloyd's at this point had become a competitor to TSB. And so Running on their systems limited how well they could compete with that, how they could come up with new products, etc. There was also a slight financial incentive that 
although they were allowed to keep using the system for another couple of years, the amount that they have to pay Lloyds for it was going to increase in 2017. So there was a bit of pressure on them to get it done faster, but there's no actual requirement for them to be done in time. And um, Sabadell seemingly convinced TSP that it had lots of experience in integrating other smaller banks, and so therefore it would be able to do all of this quickly and effectively. In practice, the report found that SABIS, which is the unit of Savadell that's kind of its subsidiary that deals with IT issues, it said that it was immature, that it was just not ready. It consistently failed in the run-up with even the sort of minor upgrades that were done in the run-up to actually implement them effectively. A final thought from you, Nick. Are there any concrete consequences that will come out of this report? Because it has been a Farago, a lot of customer detriment, a lot of reputational damage. There's been a lot of briefing and counter-briefing over the recent days, which you might imagine suggests that a relationship between Sabadell and TSB is not the greatest. Where does it go from here? I mean, as you suggest, it probably hasn't done wonders for the relations between TSB and their owners. The tensions did flare up between them last summer when this was all kicking off in the first place. Since then, they've been very keen to stress that actually things are hunky-dory again. There probably won't be any immediate repercussions from this because they've already lost the chief executive over it. The management team has almost completely changed compared to a year ago. So it's not like anyone is going to have to leave as a result of this report coming out. But in the longer term, one of the things that has changed is they have separated their IT systems from Sabadell. They don't rely on service anymore, which means that if in future Sabadell did want to offload TSP, it would be easier to do so. On a practical point, there's also ongoing investigations by the FCA and the Bank of England as well. That could lead to fines of a more kind of concrete measures. So the saga's not over yet. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks very much to Tim, Nick, Rob and Jamie and to our guest, Masha from B. Also, thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced this week by Persis Love and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.